Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, as we've been looking at the book of Second Chronicles, and we're making our way towards its conclusion next week, it's been a remarkable time of being able to see how God chose to, to use the means of revival to stir his people back towards him. In particular, this passage we're looking at in the 34th chapter that you're turning to now deals with, as we noted last week, a young man, college age, slightly after, who bucked the trends, went against the grain. His grandfather, Manasseh, and his father, Ammon, named after the Egyptian sun god, Ammon Re, false deity, led the people astray from the word, the will of God, so much so that God's word could not even be found in the temple. Amazing. But Josiah, he's in his 20s, and he's not going to allow youth to be that which stands against him, takes now this inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, drives home the whole idea that God is the sovereign one, sending his son to die for our sins, draws the people back, incredible disappointment to Josiah would be that his three sons nor his grandson who would follow him to the throne would walk in God's way but would revert back to the idolatrous ways of prior generations. But here's a man, young man, who is willing now to stand strong for his Lord. What I want to do with you this morning is a little bit of what we do during the course of the week on staff, some Review, preview. We'll review a few verses from last week's study and preview what we're, going to about, we're about to study this week in this 34th chapter. The review here, you and I are going to spot in the verses that we're going to begin pondering. is verse 14 in the preview. We'll pick it up now in verse 22. I'll just read then down to verse 28. Now, you and I find these words... While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book of the king to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They've paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. And then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Hecom, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what's written in this book that's been found. Great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. 
They've not acted in accordance with all that's written in this book. Now Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess Hodah, who's the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. And she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made. My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the word you heard. Because your heart was responsive. And you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence. I've heard you, declares the Lord. Now I'll gather you to your fathers and you'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place and on those who live here. And so they took her answer back to the king. So we're going to look at these verses and more. What we're going to be asking is, what does God want to teach us now concerning the fact that his people have rediscovered the scriptures? And what bearing does that have upon our life today? Let's look to God in prayer. Again, we're thanking you, Father, for what you've been doing in these past days. Yesterday, the tremendous ministry in this neighborhood that this building is found in. Your church is in every neighborhood where your people are, but this building is in this neighborhood. And so thank you for the way in which your people here reached out and ministered. And for those who had the heart to oversee and lead it. Father, I thank you so much that it's a congregation that understands the basis is we are saved not by our works, but by Christ's work. Christ's work alone. And then we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul wrote. So we work out what you worked in. And it starts with you. Our Father, what we want to do now is to get our arms around this part of your word. Understand it, but not merely for the mind, but to press it into the heart and work it out in action plans. Personally and family-wise, locally and regionally. So Father, what we pray now is that you will speak to us at our point of need. So warm these hearts. 
engage these minds. Challenge these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things still again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the man on the screen behind me in front of you. It's in the midst of the spiritual revival that was taking place during the Civil War where we have mentioned in prior weeks since January, in fact, in this series in Second Chronicles, that between 100 to 200,000 men of the north and 150,000 plus in the south, though they had lesser troops, came to saving faith in Christ. And there was a powerful movement of the Spirit in their midst. Here's one of the generals of the south. His name was Stonewall Jackson. That was his nickname, because in the midst of a tremendous battle, the Battle of Manassas, there was another general standing by who pointed toward Jackson and says, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Rally behind him, and they did. And his military prowess was known throughout all the states. After Robert E. Lee commended him for his performance at Chancellorville, Stonewall Jackson replied, General Lee is very kind, but he should give the glory to God. One historian writes, Jackson's men saw him stumbling and falling sometimes over trees and rocks. They almost thought he was too much to drink, but that wasn't the problem. He was prone to pray with his eyes closed while he walked. Following every victory, Jackson ordered his chaplains to hold Thanksgiving services, and he was known to ride through the camps distributing tracts to the soldiers. Wrote Henry Douglas in his book, I Rode with Stonewall. Quote, And when he had reached the place of prayer, the camp was already there bowed heads, bent knees before God. Stonewall Jackson was kneeling to the Lord of hosts in prayer for the people. Look at his posture. He's not standing, he's kneeling. And notice the bent knee. Now with that in mind, ponder what's lurking behind this. It's the powerful paradigm of Second Chronicles 7.14 that informs us regarding God's ways with revivals. It appears on the screen. If my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves. Camp on that for a moment. Because the word humble in the Hebrew means literally to bend at the knee. Not merely and exclusively physically, but even more so internally and spiritually. It is the posture of daily living where we recognize who God is and what God has done and live our lives as what 
I might describe here as the fellowship of the bent knee. Which is one of the critical conditions that God has laid out in this paradigm for revival. That if my people who are called by my name, notice he says if my people, not if all people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, really be bent at the knee and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. You and I are going to find that in the 27th verse of this chapter, twice Josiah is described, young man that he is in his 20s, as having humbled himself before God. Literally, he was in the posture of the bent knee. So what I want to do now with, again, Second Chronicles 7.14 being our guiding principle as we're working our way through the Kings and Chronicles, nearing our conclusion. I want to camp down that idea of humble oneself, the idea of the bent knee, and to draw out from this passage now the second part of chapter 34, two distinctives of what it means when you and I are called to humble ourselves before God. And the first we're going to describe like this. They were called to humble ourselves under the authority of God's word, which covers verse 22 down through verse 28. Now keep this in mind, as we've noted in the prior week. The Bible had been misplaced. The five books of the Old Testament in particular had been tucked in a corner somewhere of the temple. Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, had led the people into idolatry. Ammon, Josiah's father, named after the Egyptian sun god Ammon, led them further astray until there was a military coup that took place and he was overthrown. Josiah would come to the throne at the age of eight, and yet we find him to be one who is seeking the Lord. There's no way to quite describe this except this is God's grace at work. It was not parental influence. It was the Heavenly Father's doings. When he reaches that point in his 20s now, he is burdened for the renovation and restoration of the temple, when lo and behold, The Bible, the Torah, has been found. And in verse 18, as we noted last week of the 34th chapter, Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a, quote unquote, a a book. You can almost sense that he wants Josiah to lean forward now. What kind of book? He doesn't tell him it's the law of the Lord. He just says a book. In other words, Josiah is going to have to come to that inner conviction of his heart, like you and like me. But he doesn't stop there. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. If it was the complete Torah, we've taken 20 Samoans. 
When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes, which is the outward expression of the inward reality of the opening of the heart. You are exposed before the sovereign God, and he realizes now what has been lost. And he wants scriptural direction for shepherding these, this great people. Well, we reached a point where we, we noticed that what was written in the book and found was great. The Lord's anger was poured out. Because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord, they have not acted in accordance with all that's written in the book. And Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess Hoda, Hoda, who's the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem, the second district. Fascinating. Jeremiah, the prophet, was ministering during those days, but evidently it was out of the area. Hold comes to the forefront to speak. They knew enough that they should seek her out, and as one who was the keeper of the wardrobe, she would have been responsible for making certain that, that the priest's robes were in order for the sacrifices. Because these sacrifices would be bloody by nature and She had everything in order for that day to come. And they come to her. What fascinates us now is that this is not a woman who's interested in simply stating her opinion. Rather, it's a woman under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who communicates God's word. She's under the authority of God's word. In fact, three times in verse 22 through 28, the authority of God's word is revealed. And there are two aspects to God's word now that stand out as she begins to speak. The first is found in verse 22 through 25, where we find that God's word reveals his justice. His justice. In verse 23, she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Not this is what I think or what I want or what I desire. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. Double, dual emphasis of God's authority. And then here it comes. It's crunch time. You ever feel that way with God's word? Verse 24, 25 are intense. This is what the Lord says, I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that have been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made, My anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Stop right there. There are six critical phrases she utilizes 
within those verses of 24 and 25, each of which is a succinct commentary on the 29th chapter of Deuteronomy. She knows the Bible, even though it was misplaced in the temple. And God is using her to refresh the memory of others. And what interests here is that she is saying that God's word reveals God's justice. God's justice is governed by God's holiness and by God's righteousness. And when you separate justice from righteousness, what we think is just becomes unjust because we no longer understand what justice is. What we have to bear in mind then is that justice is part of what God is all about and it is revealed at the cross of Jesus Christ where Christ died. We committed the injustice. He received what we deserved. And now what we find is that God's authority in his word, is revealing the authority of God's justice that we deserve. If you appreciate the ministry of Chip Ingram, and I know many do, there's a story he tells about a time when he was walking the streets of Santa Cruz. There's a strip called Pacific Avenue. He writes, There's a number of bars, and I remember walking down Pacific Avenue, and it was getting a little rowdy. There were two or three very burly guys in kind of tight t-shirts that looked like they could kill. Tall, large, drunk, very drunk. If they weren't on steroids, they'd been pumping a lot of iron. And they looked like, well, you don't want to mess with them. And there was a bouncer who was trying to get into these things and get them under control. And they were so drunk and they were getting out of control. And so he had to call the police. I just happened to be walking by and these things were happening. And a police car pulls up. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm human. I'd like to watch this and see what happens. So I kind of go over there to check this out. And lo and behold, door opens and... Ladies, I don't mean this in any sexist way at all, but you know, this guy is trying to handle these big burlies, and the door closes, and about a four foot eleven police officer who is a, a female steps out. All four foot eleven of her. And I'm thinking to myself, if I'm the one in control, trying to get these big, burly, drunk guys under control, I'm going to send in a six foot five weightlifting police officer, not a four foot eleven woman. So I thought, I'm going to watch this one play out. And I could have been more wrong, you know, because the issue is not your size or your strength. The issue is the authority, and the power you possess. So I'm watching carefully. And this very confident four-foot-11 officer walks out and says, Gentlemen, 
do we have a problem here? We're good, they said to her. Get out of here. Excuse me, she steps forward, and she has this badge on her. I'm authorized by Santa Cruz County to enforce justice. I'd like both of you to know that and understand that right now. Over against the car. Do you understand? And they both started to balk a little bit, and she put her hand on her revolver. It was a forty-five. And you know what? I've never seen two big, strong, drunk guys get sober so fast. And it was like, I think she might use this thing, you know. And pretty soon I get this four foot eleven little girl with two guys, you know, shouting, spread them out. And they did. And you know why? She has a badge that speaks of authority. Her word counts for something. You gotta do what she says. And if there's any problem with that, she would add, I've got some power on my leg that I can use to enforce this event immediately. Quote, unquote. And I'm drawn back to Second Chronicles 34. Because what we find when we look at the unraveling of Egypt right now, and the tensions in the Middle East, and the confusions globally, is that there tends to be a separation between authority and power. There are those who have authority who lack power, and there are those who have power who lack authority. And because of this disconnect between authority and power, the world is in the condition that it is in, except for the fact that your sovereign God connects authority with power and reveals this connection through his word. And so now you can get a sense, as Huldah is expressing herself in all what she may be 4 foot 11 worth of truth-telling, that she is not appealing to her own sense of preference but communicating the authority of this all-powerful God. And what is being stated at this point is that God's word reveals his justice as she now turns their attention to the 29th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy where we're informed that if God's people walked away from God the way Manasseh and Ammon did, there would be repercussions in the form of justice served. Because the one who has authority has power, and the one who has power has authority. But what's fascinating for you, and fascinating for me, as we watch the tensions in the Middle East and the global chaos of today, of the disconnect between power and authority, and why things are where they are, is that God does not merely 
And God does not exclusively review his justice, which we find in verse 22 through 25. But furthermore, God's word reveals his mercy, which you see in verse 26 through 28. Now, as that appears on the screen in verse 26 to 28, regarding the mercy of the Lord, look for it now as I pick up on verse 26. She gets personal. You can almost get a sense that her heart is warmed, but God's heart is warmed. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart, it's singular, not collective. Because your heart was responsive and you, mock this, humbled yourself. It means literally to bend the knee. And you bent the knee, so to speak, before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people. And because you humbled yourself, bent the knee, before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, the repentance found in that soul. I have heard you, declares the Lord. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves to be bent at the knee and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I have heard you, declares the Lord. See how faithful he is to his word? Now I will gather you to your fathers. You will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. What he's saying is that justice is going to come down upon this unrepentant nation. But mercy is going to be provided to this repentant king. Mercy and justice, like power and authority, are not to be disconnected from one another. You see them both at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ dies because of our sin. Dies for us sinners. Justice and mercy are two sides of that one cross, you see. They're not pitted against one another. Now, a danger for those who love Jesus is the tendency to emphasize justice to the exclusion of mercy, the justice of God to the exclusion of the mercy of God. The flip is also equally true. There's the danger of God's people to emphasize the mercy of God to the exclusion of the justice of God. God will have none of that. He connects authority with power, and he connects justice with mercy. Otherwise, we would have an incomplete work upon that cross, you see. Because he did not merely die, 
He died for sinners. Purposefully. It was the day of the Revolutionary War period, and Peter Miller was a pastor who had a very rich, close relationship to George Washington. There was a man in the region in which Miller ministered who had been sentenced for treason. His name was Michael Whitman. Michael Whitman was utterly opposed to everything that pertained to God's word, God's people, God's ways. When Pastor Miller found out that Whitman had been convicted, he started out on foot and walked 70 miles to Philadelphia to plead for this man's life. He was admitted into Washington's presence, you see, because he was a friend with George Washington. And George Washington said, now, Peter, I can't grant you the life of your friend. The pastor responded, sir, he's not my friend. He is the bitterest enemy I've ever had. Washington exclaimed, what? You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in different light. I grant the pardon. And Miller took Whitman home. And Jesus walked more than 70 miles to reach Bethlehem. But he did it to save those who, because of sin, our enemies, to who God is. So here then, what we see is the connection between authority and power. And here we see the connection between justice and mercy. And all of this develops now an understanding and preparation for Christ who would come to die for us. We're called to humble ourselves, to be the fellowship of the bent knee under the authority of God's word, which had been missing in, of all places, the temple during the days of his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, and Josiah's father. But he doesn't leave us there, doesn't Because there's more. In verse 29 through verse 33, we're given the second incredible distinctive of the people who are willing to humble themselves before God. Because number two, we're called to humble ourselves for the ministry of God's word. Verse 29 through verse 33. Which is to work out what God has worked in. And everything we do as a congregation is the working out of what God works in. Whether it be teaching in Awana, and I'd encourage you in these coming days, if there's an opening and a need present, that you sleeves rolled up, jump in. Or in CE, if there's a need on a Sunday morning, evening, sleeves rolled up, jump in. Or for those that were involved yesterday with sleeves rolled up, you jumped in. A word indeed, people, because... God's word informs us as to what the deeds ought to be. When the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, get a load of this leadership here. It's powerful. He went up to the temple 
of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read, listen to this, parents, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Listen to that, students, as you are pondering how to influence shape hearts, start study groups in college or elsewhere. What stands out to you here? Because we are under the authority of God's Word, we are given a ministry of God's Word, verbally and visually. Verses 29 and 30 stand out as an emphasis, number one, of the reading of God's Word. He read in their hearing all the words. And he positioned himself in such a way it would make a difference. And you will find that revival begins to fade and a nation begins to drift when the Word of God becomes silenced and once again gets hidden in our own forms of temples. And D.A. Carson, a former professor and one who I've taught with as well in classrooms, understands that. He recalls a time back in 1975. My wife and I were on vacation in southern Wales, Great Britain, stepped into a Calvinist Methodist church and spent a little time walking around, taking in the sights of a congregation that had long since sacrificed Scripture in favor of classic liberalism. But I couldn't help but noticing that there was a woman who served us and gave us a tour who had been most likely in her 80s and spoke highly of the Lord, and I wondered if she had been around during the Welsh revival of 1904 and 05. Remember, this was a tour in the year of 1975 that Don Carson was on. So I began cautiously asking her some questions. Were you raised in this church? Oh, yes, all my life, she said. You must have seen a lot of changes in this valley. He looked out over the landscape. Yes, many, she said. Then I decided I was going to take the plunge. And I asked the question that was on my mind all along. Tell me, is it true that in the Welsh revival in 1904-05, so many miners were converted and cleaned up their language that the pit ponies that hauled out the coal could no longer understand them? There's a question for you. Her face lit up. You know about the Welsh revival, she blurted out, completely animated now. I came to know Jesus just as a young girl at that time. And what you say is true. My father was a miner. He stopped cursing and drinking, was a changed man. The ponies couldn't understand him and went away. Story after story, as I probed with gentle questions, listening to her recall those days when it seemed as though the heavens' robes were torn in two. And the Lord came down. After about half an hour or so, I asked, tell me now, 
Where do you go for spiritual nourishment these days? Who teaches you the Word of God? It's not to be found around here, she responded. Do you see how fleeting this is? There was a revival under Hezekiah. That was Josiah's great-grandfather. But Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, turned away from the Lord, and then Ammon, his son, son God, king, comes along on the scene and takes a Josiah to raise people back up, to gain a new sense of the presence of God, and they're reintroduced to the Word of God. But you know what? Josiah will have three sons who become king and one grandson, and they'll walk away from God, and so will the nation as well. You see some beauty here in the midst of the ashes. And yet here's a man who is willing to stand up, stand alone, stand out in the reading of the Word of God in verse 29 and 30 because he understands as you and I understand how the scriptural slash spiritual shapes the cultural and the cultural the political. But There's something more here. In verse 29 and 30, you and I see the reading of God's Word in verse 31 now through verse three, 33, notice with me the responses to God's Word. They won't appear on the screen, but they do appear in your Word. Look at verse 31. Let's start with Josiah's response. The king stood by his pillar, renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the law and keep his commands, regulations, decrees, Here it comes, and I like this, and I've underlined this. With all his heart and with all his soul, which you won't find in the subsequent responses, to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Verse 31, that's Josiah. The phrase I use here is total allegiance. Total. But now come the people in verse 32. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. But nothing is said of their hearts and their souls. Verse 32, I call this external allegiance. It's outward. Lacking inward. But there's a third group. Verse 33. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. Here it comes. And don't overlook what we've got coming our way now. Go slow here, okay? Go slow. As long as he lived. They did not fail to follow the Lord the God of their fathers. That's the third response. I call that temporal allegiance. As long as they've got their accountability partner, Josiah, around, they'll pledge allegiance to God. But the moment Josiah dies, who will at the age of 39, they walk away from God. Three responses. Which group are you in? 
And that's why we're taken back then to the scene that once again appears on the screen in front of you. Because like this man, those who have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the one who revealed in, in your God's Word, become part of the fellowship of the bent knee. We've humbled ourselves before God. And if my people, not all people, but if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek their face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Which response is yours? Let's stand together. Seems like he barely finished college and Josiah is leading a nation. Such a young man. But as we've noted, Father, it's not the years of our lives. It's the yearnings of our hearts. And you tell us he humbled himself before you. So if there are any, Father, today in any of these services, including right now, who for some reason are resisting, fighting your word, do a powerful work. I pray they won't wait for that final day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that it comes now. And use that person now who is shifting to the bent knee position to powerfully minister your word and your grace to those in need. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.